Let's pray. Lord, again, we do declare how deep is your love, how high and how wide are your mercies. Lord, we come back together again this morning to gather together a corporation of sinners, a corporation, Lord, a corporate entity, a body of men and women who have found themselves to be vile and heinous in your sight who have found themselves to be dead in trespasses and sins and hostility against you. And yet, Lord, who have been dumbfounded by the marvelous truth that in this state, while we were dead, while we were hostile, while we were your, we were your enemies, you sent your Son, Christ, and crushed him for our sins. You have reconciled us to yourself through the cross of your Son. And Father, we in two ways cannot get enough of this truth. We cannot get enough of this truth because we cannot get over this truth. We cannot fathom the majesty. We cannot fathom the mercy that is extended to us through the cross. And yet, Lord, we also cannot get over this because we continually need more of your grace. Lord, we are in some ways ashamed that we have to come again and ask and beg because, Lord, You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. But Lord, the reality is in our weakness, Lord, in our frailty, in our still, in our sinfulness, in our flesh, we still are in need of the mighty mercy and the great power that comes to us through your Son. So Lord, we come again this morning. We find ourselves ever failing to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We find ourselves constantly just sinning against you. We find ourselves constantly lazy, constantly lustful, constantly fleshly. Lord, we find ourselves even in these, this day and age fearful of the future, fearful of what this world and what this nation has in store. Yet, Lord, in all this weakness, we trust that you will again comfort us. That you will again shepherd us. That you will again care for us. So Lord, we thank you again for the cross. We thank you again for this morning, the provision of communion that keeps us as a church cross-centered, which will keep us as a church hoping and trusting and dependent upon you. Lord, we pray for our pastor again as he is away. We pray for your grace upon him and Saran as they're in D.C., that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen them, that you would rest them, and you would bring them back refreshed. Lord, we pray for those men and women here this morning in our midst, Lord, who are enduring trials of various kinds. Lord, remind them, Lord, give them faith to believe that the testing of their faith will result in perseverance and proven character and this hope which will not disappoint. And Lord, we pray for many who have lost houses, Lord, who have last lost possessions, who have lost in some sense all that they own in this, in this world. We pray, Lord, that if they know you, that you would comfort them, that you would shepherd them. If they do not, that you would bring believers alongside them to encourage them and preach the gospel to them. And Father, we thank you again for this time this morning. And we ask again, especially for the next 
45 minutes or so that you would be very present through the preaching of your word. In your name we pray. Amen. The Japanese attacked the Philippines on December 18th, 1941. Corporal Glenn Fraser found himself in the midst of a war he thought he would never have to face. Under orders from General MacArthur, Fraser and thousands of other U.S. military men retreated into the Bataan Peninsula, along with many Filipino troops. Most of their supplies were left behind, and their rations were soon dwindling, cut in half. On April 9, 1942, Fraser became part of the largest surrender by the United States Army in history. 78,000 American and Filipino troops surrendered to the Japanese. He then endured the infamous Bataan Death March, months of horrific conditions at Camp O'Donnell, where hundreds of prisoners died every day from disease, starvation, and torture. One day, he volunteered to work on burial detail to, to dig ditches for his fallen comrades. And as he did so, he decided that he would take off one of his two sets of dog tags and, and throw it into the ditch, thinking that perhaps later on, after he died, and when the U.S. found these buried bodies, they would find his dog tags, and at least they would be able to tell his parents that he was dead, and at least they would have some clue of where he was, where he had died. In October of 1942, Fraser was then shipped by the Japanese to Japan, and spent nearly three nightmarish years in a succession of prison camps there. Forced to perform slave labor, Fraser and his fellow soldiers did their best to sabotage the Japanese war effort, putting rocks into cement mixers, drilling holes in the bottom of oil barrels, pouring sand into gas tanks, and loosening blocks so that a submarine under repair slid into the bay upside down. During his imprisonment, Fraser survived double pneumonia, torture, a week of isolation in a covered pit, and beatings that so, were so frequent he describes them as becoming routine. At one camp, a guard bayoneted him in the knee as punishment for not lifting his legs high enough while he was marching. He, he nearly lost this leg to gangrene. In late summer of 44, because he had not been heard from in two and a half years, the army sent a telegram to Fraser's family saying that he was presumed dead. When his dog tags were discovered after the Americans retook the Philippines in early 1945, the army notified his family that he was now confirmed to be dead. Meanwhile, Fraser still lived in Japan in confinement and imprisonment. There he witnessed the Americans' encroachment upon Japan, bombing them, and he began to hope that the war's end might be in sight. After the first atomic bomb was dropped, Fraser and his fellow POWs were given orders to dig their own graves. But soon after the second atomic bomb, the guards at his prison camp simply walked away and left the prisoners alone. Fraser and a number of POWs walked out among the dazed Japanese civilian population took the train to Tokyo, and of freedom. Upon his first opportunity, he called home. His mom answered the phone, said, this is your son, Glenn. She immediately passed out and fell over. 
The ant therefore came over, picked up the phone. He said the same thing. This is Glenn. The ant passed out and fell over. The father came and picked up the phone. And Glenn said, Dad, this is Glenn. And his father replied, I knew you weren't dead. I knew you would come home. Glenn Fraser's life, like so many other veterans, reminds us of the incredible cost paid not only for the freedom of America, but for the freedom of the world. It is for men like Glenn Fraser and so many other men and women that days like Veterans Day and Memorial Day have been established. Uh, some of you may know much about the cost of, uh, that our veterans have paid. Many of us have uh, parents or perhaps grandparents who, who paid the ultimate price. But days like Veterans Day and Memorial Day really serve two different functions. First, they, as memorials, they exist to teach those who don't know or to remind those who have forgotten. Secondly, these memorials exist to allow those who do know and have not forgotten a time to reflect all the more. It allows them a time to celebrate or to weep and to mourn, to take extended time to reflect. In this way, memorials cause these two different peoples to come together. The need for memorial, the need for time to reflect, the need for time to remember is not simply a national or a patriotic event. Even Christians have memorials because there is always so much to learn and there is always the danger that so much will be forgotten. This morning we are here, if you will, for a memorial service. For some of us, the memorial service is most necessary in order to remind us. For others of us, the truths of the cross have so filled our hearts with gratitude this week that Sunday morning will serve not much so much as a reminder, but as an opportunity to release our pent-up praise for our Lord and Savior who paid the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. Whatever place you find yourself in this morning, whether a need to be reminded or whether opportunity to pour out your praise, we find ourselves this morning upon holy ground. We enter upon a, a study of the memorial of all memorials. We come to hallowed ground where the blood of one man is more potent and more po- profound than that of a million soldiers who pay the ultimate sacrifice. Veterans Day and Memorial Day, though profoundly necessary in this life, will ultimately be no more. But the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior will be held in esteem and adoration for all of eternity. And to that end, I ask you now to turn to your inner Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We read this morning about Christ's provision of communion in order to keep the church cross-centered. Now, before I read our, our text this morning, I think I would do a great disservice if I didn't set the context. Many of your Bibles have at the beginning of chapter 26, may say something like, the plot to kill Jesus. That's the head title there, the plot to kill Jesus. The scriptures in no way lessen the responsibility of men in the murder of Jesus. 
In fact, Peter told the Jews to their faces in Acts 2.23, he said to them, You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. That is, you murdered Jesus. You killed him. But we must always remember that the crucifixion is not first and foremost the accomplishment of men's hatred for God. It is first and foremost the fulfillment of God's love for man. Christ's death is not the result of men's triumph over God. It is the result of God's sovereignty over man and his power to use man's wickedness to accomplish his glorious and gracious ends. And so what we need to focus on here for a few moments in chapter 26 is that, yes, there is a plot to kill Jesus. But the ultimate plot is not of men. It is of God. We learn the first few verses of chapter 26 that it is not Jesus who is a pawn in the hands of the Pharisees, but it is the Pharisees who are the pawns in the hand of God in the hands of Christ. God is in absolute control, and every single event in this context shows us that his meticulous hand has prepared everything, that all is ordained, that all is part of the Father's will, and thus the Son quietly, consciously, humbly, obediently, and boldly moves forward to his death on the cross. Note, first of all, chapter 26, verse, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over to crucifixion. Note, the first, note those words, uh, in two days, he says he'll be crucified. He is very matter-of-fact about this. At this point, he is now not only specific that he will die, and he is not only specific in how he will die, but he is very specific about when he will die. But the scene immediately changes in verses 3 through 5. Here the Pharisees plan to put Jesus to death, but they explicitly plan to wait until after the Passover. In other words... They're going to wait longer than two days to try to put Jesus to death. Verses 6 through 13 change scenes again. And we read now the story of Jesus at the home of Simon the leper, probably a man that Jesus had healed. And while he's reclining there, this woman enters again with this vial, this alabaster jar, and she anoints the head of Jesus. She pours out this expensive perfume upon Jesus. And Jesus declares that what this woman has done was to prepare him for burial. The importance of this is, again, that Jesus declares his sovereign plan to fulfill his Father's will at the cross. This is not a humanly devised plan. Verses 14 through 16, again, jump to another scene. This time, Judas himself goes to the Pharisees and he makes a bargain of blood. He says to them, you give me some money? I'll give you Jesus. Now the Pharisees, they have already determined that they're going to wait. They're going to wait till later on. But they can't pass up this opportunity by Judas. That whenever opportunity arises, we must take it. If Christ, if the opportunity to take this man Jesus' life arises before what we have planned, we're going to have to take it. What we learned then 
is that Christ sets the stage, that God sets the stage, not for Jesus to die when the Pharisees determine, but for Christ to die when God has determined. Christ will not die after the Passover like they had planned. He will die on the Passover. He will not accidentally die on the Passover, but he will die as the fulfillment of the Passover, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And all this context and chronology is to loudly proclaim that everything leading up to the cross is the sovereign plan of God and his Son. In fact, even 17 through 19, verses 17 through 19 here, Christ, he sends his disciples into the city to prepare for the Passover meal. And, and even the way that Christ describes everything, he just tells them to go into the city and, and you'll find a man, a certain man. Luke tells us that this certain man will be just carrying a pitcher of water. Just, just walk into the city, you'll see this man carrying a pitcher of water. Tell him that the Lord needs a place of his, of his house and, and he'll show you an upper room that's already prepared. As if everything is already ordained, as if everything has already been laid out and planned by God. Finally, we get to verses 20 through 25. It reveals again who is really in charge. Judas, the betrayer, sits smugly at the table, thinking surely no one knows of his plan. But Jesus, in front of everyone, seemingly out of nowhere, he says to them, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Christ knows it all and is in control of it all. And even Judas is a pawn in the plan of God. It is in this context that we read verses 26 through 30. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. As we prepped last week, we embarked this morning to see how God has made practical provision for the church to remain cross-centered. Our Lord knew that it would be all too easy to stray away from the greatest truths in the universe so our Lord not only ordained that the church be cross-centered, but here he institutes the most practical means to keep the church cross-centered through the provision of communion. So for our sakes this morning, perhaps somewhat artificially, not totally, I've broken down this text into uh, four parts to the provision of communion. Four parts to this provision of communion. The first part of this is that the Lord's Supper reminds us of the fulfillment of God's promises. The Lord's Supper, communion, reminds us of the fulfillment of God's promises. Now this fulfillment is marked by the context which we have already looked at. Christ is de determining as has been prepared in the Old Testament. It is marked by what we've already looked at in the context of fulfilling God's will. And it is also marked by the simple words, while they were eating. As you learn from the context, Jesus had sent the disciples off 
to find and prepare a place for the Passover meal. The words while they were eating do not describe a normal everyday meal. This was the Passover meal. The significance of this meal cannot be passed over, cannot be brushed over, because the entirety of what the Lord is going to do flows from the significance of Passover and ultimately fulfills what the Passover pointed to. So, turn in your Bibles, if you will, turn back to the Old Testament, turn to Exodus chapter 12. It's fitting for us as we celebrate communion this morning, as we look at this text, to read the institution of the Passover We will read this morning then the institution of the Passover, and then we will study the institution of the Lord's Supper. Let me read Exodus 12, verses 1 through 13. Let's follow closely together. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It it shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest him's house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it from the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner. With your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now turn lastly to verse 23. For the Lord Yahweh will pass through the to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, It is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes and the people bowed low and worshipped. We saw last week that blood is necessary to atone for sins. 
And here at the Passover, we see in vivid truth the people slaughtering an innocent lamb and smearing the blood over the door so that God would pass them over. Failure to do so would result in the death of firstborn. If you live with your parents, if you were the firstborn son, but there was no blood over your house, you died. If you were a father and you had children, but your own father did not put the blood over, the, over the, his own doorpost and you were the firstborn, you died. What we learn here is that though the Israelites were God's chosen people, they were also sinners. They were sinners under the wrath of a holy God, sinners who could be passed over by this holiness only by blood. Sinners who could be redeemed and ransomed only at the cost of the life of another. And though being ransomed from Egypt was a massive ordeal, the Passover pointed to a far more significant captivity and an even greater ransom. Now, it is important to note that Moses tells the Israelites, I tried to emphasize that he tells them that you will perform this forever. This supper with Jesus and and the disciples then was being eaten in direct obedience to that command. Jesus and his disciples were obeying the word of God, celebrating and commemorating God's sovereign grace, the night he redeemed Israel out of Egypt. Uh, It is well known that this meal with Jesus is often called the Last Supper. It's called the Last Supper because indeed it was our Lord's Last Supper. It was our Lord's Last Supper. It was our Lord's Last Supper particularly with the disciples. But not only was it the Last Supper, it was the Last Passover Supper. Now we have to ask ourselves, how can that which God told is to be executed forever and forever, how can that Passover come to an end? Well, our simple answer this morning to simplify all this is that when God says this will be a memorial forever, he must mean forever until. Forever until. What the Passover pointed to is that forever blood sacrifice must be made Forever a sacrificial system must be in place until there is a sacrifice sufficient to completely and finally atone for sins. Here in Christ is the provision of the Lamb who will take away the sins of the world. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the fulfillment of God's promises. The fulfillment of God's faithfulness to wipe away the eternal stain of sin. This was the last Passover because our Lord's faithfulness, which we see in our second point as well. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the faithfulness of our Savior. First, the Lord's Supper reminds us of the fulfillment of God's promises. Secondly, the Lord's Supper reminds us of the faithfulness of our Savior. Verse 26 says that while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. Now the eating of the bread was part of the Passover meal. This bread was to be uh, unleavened bread, just as the original Passover bread was unleavened. It was unleavened because it was to be done in haste. It takes time. It takes a long time for the, the yeast to cause the bread to rise. 
And so the Passover meal was literally eaten in haste. There was no time to let the, the bread rise. So they had to bake it, they had to make it without leaven, and they had to eat it in haste. It is this aspect of the Passover that Jesus commemorates with the bread. He takes this unleavened bread, he breaks it, and then he hands it to his friends. Now, there's some debate as to whether or not the breaking of the bread is symbolic. Right? Some want to say that uh, the breaking of the bread is not an aspect of the communion service. Because the scriptures explicitly said, even in, in the Passover meal, the Lord said, do not break any of its bones. And as well as John 19.36 says that not, not one bone of him shall be broken in fulfillment of the Psalms. And so some want to say that as the bread is certainly the body of Christ, that the breaking does not symbolize the body of Christ because his body was not broken. I personally take the position that the breaking of the bread does symbolize to some extent the body of Christ, the broken body of Christ. Although Jesus' bones were not themselves broken, his body was. Isaiah explicitly proclaims, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And all three synoptic gospels tell us that Christ, he broke the bread and then he gave some to his disciples. Now, I'm not going to die on this breaking of the bread symbolism. But what we will die on is what he meant when he said, take eat, this is my body. He breaks the bread, he hands it to them and he says, take eat, this is my body. He's explaining to them his substitution. He's explaining to them. His substitution. Luke records the fullness of Christ's words in Luke twenty two nineteen. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. Here is the point of the word body. It is the sacrifice to be offered up in place of the death that all of us deserve. He is offering to them his life as a ransom. He offered himself as the only potential substitute at the cross. So here's the lesson for us. Communion keeps the church cross-centered because it reminds us of our utter destitution and neediness before God. Communion always pronounces that it is the faithfulness of God that procures us, not our faithfulness that procures him. If we make our faithfulness the standard by which he will or will not accept us, we have missed the whole point of the cross. The cross is the perpetual reminder that God is extending his grace to sinners who are needy. Christ in John continued to offer himself up. He said, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. He who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood, he will not perish, he will live. So Christ, he faithfully fulfills the Father's will by offering up himself at the cross. And he commemorates this. This meal for the disciples was prophetic. The cross was to come. For us, it's commemorative. We look back and see the faithfulness of our Savior. So the Lord's Supper reminds us of the fulfillment of God's promises. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the faithfulness of our Savior. And thirdly, the Lord's Supper reminds us of the finality of Christ's sacrifice. It reminds us of the finality 
of Christ's sacrifice. Verse 27, he says, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. In the giving of the cup, Jesus lays bare the full meaning of the giving of the bread. If there's any, you know, if, if there's anything unclear about what is he saying when he's giving his body, he clears it all away when he says about the cup, about the wine, this is my blood. We saw again last week how the death and resurrection of Jesus alone is able to save sinners. It was not simply the only it was not simply a way to save sinners. It was the only way to save sinners. And this is what Jesus is pronouncing then when he refers to the covenant in his blood. Luke specifies more clearly that this covenant in Luke 22:20 20, where he says, "This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood." Now, it's important for us to take a few moments here. Christ here is contrasting the new covenant with the old covenant. Now, let me try to help a little bit this way. It's helpful to be mindful that this is called the Bible, right? Bible means book. But we understand that many books make up this one book. That The Old Testament contains 39 books. The New Testament contains 27 books. Now, the word testament is synonymous for the word covenant. So you read the Old Testament, you're reading, you're reading the Old Covenant. You're reading the New Testament, you're reading the New Covenant. It would be wrong for us to simply think of the Old Covenant as a heavy burden of laws upon the backs of the Israelites. Now, we associate, we think the Old Testament, Old Covenant, we think of the law. We think of all the burdens and all the commands and all the rules and regulations that Israel continually failed to obey. And in that sense, this is true. This is what the law did to them. But it would be wrong for us to only think of and always think of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, as a heavy burden of laws upon the backs of the Israelites. In actuality, the Old Covenant was inaugurated in grace It was inaugurated right after God in full display of sovereign power and grace, redeemed Israel out of Egypt. So he he rescues them by these awesome acts and he brings them into the wilderness. And on the mountain at Sinai, he he institutes this, this law. He institutes this national constitution. And he says to them, let me read for you, specifically in Exodus 19, 5 through 6. He says, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. That's what God is saying. It's my grace to you to make you my specific people. Out of all the peoples of the earth, in grace I have chosen you. To worship me, to know me, and to reflect me to all the nations. This covenant dominated Israel's relationship to God. This covenant was to regulate their relationship with God. And this covenantal system was marked by the sacrificial system. 
Because though God had redeemed these people and though he had made them his people, they were still sinful. And so he institutes the sacrificial system to atone for their sins. But through the sacrificial system, he also showed them that the blood of the bulls and goats can never remove the infinite stain of sin, nor the infinite offense before a holy God. Under the old covenant, then, we understand that men are doomed. That by the works of the law, no man can be justified. That as God made this bilateral covenant with Israel, saying, I will be faithful to you, you be faithful to me. But their unfaithfulness annulled the covenant of God. Their, in fact, their inability to obey the law revealed that the issue wasn't simply external obedience, but it was complete inability to obey because of the heart. What I'm saying is that the old covenant revealed the deadness and depravity of the human heart. It was not that the old covenant was a failure because of God. It was a failure because of man. And it is this inherent failure and this inherent inability in man that God prophesies of a better and a new coming covenant in Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, here is where we learn of this new covenant, which Jesus refers to in Matthew 26. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Jeremiah prophecies on behalf of the Lord. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Listen, listen carefully. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. He's saying, I'm going to make a new covenant that is very unique and distinct from the old covenant. This covenant, which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, this is what I will do. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It is this covenant that Christ is referring to. The new covenant is God's promise to take truth, to take law, and to instill it and to put it in people and enable them to obey. In other words, Jeremiah 31 is the promise to cause people to be born again. It's the, it's the promise where he says, I will remove your heart of flesh, I mean your heart of stone, and I will instill in you a heart of flesh. I will implant my law, I will cause truth to flourish and to grow in your heart. I will change your hearts from being obstinate, ignorant, and rebellious. And I will give you hearts that know God's truth, that love God's truth, and that can obey God's truth. It is sin that makes the man wicked. It is sin that defiles us. And therefore, God cannot simply will our sin, nor simply will our sinful nature away. Sin must be paid for. And the means to be born again is enabled only if one who is perfect pays for those sins. And it is to this that Christ is saying that he is the one who is going to bring this about. He is declaring that it is his blood that inaugurates, that enables this covenant. Remember Leviticus 17.11. For, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. 
For it is the blood by reason of life that makes atonement. We learned again last week that it could not just be any blood, but it had to be the blood. The sacrificial system revealed the inept blood of bulls and goats. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But Christ revealed the perfect and once for all sacrifice through the shedding of his own blood. That's what Hebrews 7.26-27 emphasizes. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. In other words, in Christ, the new covenant is ratified. In Christ, the old system of perpetual sacrifices is put to death because the final singular atoning sacrifice has wiped away all sin through the cross. So Christ then is telling his disciples here in verses 27 and 28 that he is going to offer up the full and final sacrifice once and for all. Hebrews 10, 10 says this, by this will, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. First Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So Christ is saying, my cross is the final sacrifice. It finishes everything. This is what makes communion a memorial. It points to the finished, final, completed work of Christ. It points to the finished, final, and completed work of Christ. This is not a ritual. The body of Jesus does not become, you know, incorporated in the bread. This is not transubstantiation. The bread becomes the body of Jesus, and then we sacrifice it and offer it up for our sins. It is a memorial commemorating, pointing to, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is where we must be reminded that communion is a reminder of what God has done for us. It is not about performing some ritual for God. Communion is efficacious. It is effective by grace, not by works. We need to be refreshed by this truth by stepping back for it from a moment and seeing the grace of communion versus the works of religion. Catholics celebrate the Eucharist And say that Christ is being sacrificed again. And through the bread and cup they believe that they are cleansed and made right with God. Mormons are baptized for the dead. Believing that this will allow those that they are baptized for to escape hell and go to heaven. The great emperor Constantine waited until right before he died to be baptized. Because he thought baptism would wash away all his sins right before he died. Muslims travel to Mecca or pray certain phrases or or kiss the black stone, all in hopes that these rituals will cause their God to allow them into heaven. It is against these futile works that communion shines brightly. Communion is about remembering that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, that sin had left the crimson stain, but he washes it white as snow. Communion, then, is not a rain dance to get God to do something. Communion is not about us getting God's attention, but about God having having gotten ours. Communion is not us trying to get God to give us something, but remembering that God has given all to us. 
In this is love, not that we love God, not that we have done anything for God or will do anything for God or that communion is anything for God, but that God loved us and he sent his son to be a propitiation in his blood through faith. Why this is important is it means that the ordinances of baptism and communion are by faith and by faith alone. We are proclaiming what Christ has done. In baptism, we are professing that he did it all the cross, that he did it for me. And by faith, I believe that he did this. And by faith, I am cleansed through his blood and pronounced righteous before God. Communion, likewise, is an act of faith. And it is done in faith and in faith alone. Communion is for those who have repented and and have put their faith in Christ and in Christ alone. And this is how communion brings us grace. It is not that as we eat the bread and, and drink the cup that something happens to us. It is not that as we, as we eat the bread and, and drink the cup that grace is infused to us through these elements. No, it is the grace is we're reminded. We are allowed to dwell and rejoice in what the bread and the cup tell us. That we have been redeemed, that we have been purchased, that we have been saved. Communion is the great reminder that though our sins feel more vile, and though we even seem to be more sinful than when we first believed, we must cling to Christ and Christ alone. The drinking and eating is itself symbolic of faith. Communion must be done in faith because our very salvation is by faith. By faith we are taking the bread and the cup and acknowledging that Jesus died on the cross. And it's through all this, it's through this night where Christ, he institutes the cup and the bread, saying, I'm going to the cross. I'm instituting the new covenant. I will cause you to be born again to a new and living hope. After the cross, after I ascend to the Father, use this provision of communion to remember the cross, to remember what I have done for you. It is the new covenant and the forgiveness of sins through the cross, all by faith, that allows us to experience the fourth and final aspect of the provision of communion. Our final part is that the Lord's Supper points us to our future with Christ. The Lord's Supper points us to our future with Christ. It says in verse 29, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. In verse 29, Jesus tells us not only is the eating and drinking symbolic of what Christ has done on the cross, but it is prophetic of what is to come. Communion is the provision to keep the church cross centered because the cross centered church fixes its hope Not in the present kingdom, but in the kingdom which is to come. The greatest lesson I would have us learn from this truth here is that the Christian should be the greatest pessimist as well as the greatest optimist. We should be the greatest pessimist in that we put no faith and no hope in this world. And we should be the greatest optimists knowing that we have an incredible, final, and secure future in Christ, where we will be with Him in His kingdom forever. Now, I'm just going to 
share my heart. I'm just going to bear my heart a little bit. I have found, uh, as a husband, as a father, as I continue to read the news, and this is kind of novel for me. I think I grew up, especially as a single man, I don't think I was afraid of the world. I don't think I was uh, afraid of war. I don't think I was afraid of death. I don't think I was afraid of suffering. I don't think I was worried about if I lost my job, any of those things. But I'll tell you personally that as a husband, as a father, responsible for my wife, responsible for free little girls, the more I read the news, the more I read about the economy, the more I read about the way the world's going, I've, I find for the first time that my heart is fearful. I find myself wondering, what if this happens? What if the dollar, dollar tanks? What if the economy crashes? What if everything that we know obliterates? What if, you know, what if there is famine? What if all this and all that? What if I can't provide for my family? What am I to do? And I find that there is fear in my heart. I fear these certain collapses. And yet what all this reveals to me is that this fear is the result of having my faith placed in this world system for far too long. I need a healthy dose of the truth that this world is fading away. Paul said this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.1. He says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Be skeptical of the world. 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Be skeptical of this world. 1 John 2, 16-17, For all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, is not of the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God, the one who is skeptical of this world, but optimistic about the one to come, he will live forever. These texts command us to be skeptical of this world and to put our hope in the rock-solid assurance that Christ has secured heaven for us. But I fear, if you can relate with me, that sadly often we have it backwards. We are optimists of this world and pessimists of the kingdom to come. We continue to hope that things in this world will get better. As things around us are collapsing, even we find ourselves in disbelief. Even we are amazed by all the news of our failing economy. Even we are, find ourselves thinking things will get better. They must get better. They have to get better. This is America. This is the 21st century. The world is progressively becoming a better place to live. And yet we fail to realize that this is how the unbeliever thinks. He is perpetually optimistic about this world. And he is skeptical of God's kingdom. He is always hopeful that the economy will get better. He is always hopeful that world peace will be attained, that terrorism will cease, that the nations will unite. On the other hand, he is skeptical of anything eternal. To the unbeliever, heaven is either a pathetically weak and fluffy doctrine, or it is simply the place where no one really looks forward to going, but regardless gets to go there after the good life is over. We too are skeptical of the kingdom of heaven. We show our skepticism when we think that heaven is some ethereal place of clouds and harps, where joy and happiness are artificially induced through spiritual lithium. We think of heaven this way because so many of us are just content to hope that this life will get better. We think, I don't need a new kingdom. Just fix this one, I'm fine. 
We are content with this broken down, fallen universe and scared that the one that awaits will be a cosmic letdown. All this reveals that we are pessimists of the kingdom of heaven and optimists of this world. And in this state, Christ reminds us through communion. Communion reverses this skepticism. When Jesus says, my father's, we will drink this again in my father's kingdom. He is speaking of the time when God will assert his absolute rule over all the earth, executing his justice and ushering in the blessed age of the rule of Jesus Christ. To eat with Christ in his kingdom is to eat bread during the eternal rule of the Messiah on this earth. It is not so much a change of location, but a change of administration. Instead of the world being controlled by men, it will be ruled by Christ. Now Christ says, the bread and the cup point to this time. The bread and the cup point to the age when I will rule. And so what communion should do is not simply point us to the fact that we will be in a new kingdom, but that we will again be with Christ. What should leave us with the greatest pessimism of this world is that it is absent of what we should long for most. Christ. The focus of the kingdom is the king. The joy of the kingdom is the king. We will eat one day with Christ. This is what drives the hope of the believer. And all this is declared in drinking the cup of communion. Not simply to look back and see what has taken place at the cross through saving our souls and sanctifying us, but to cause us to look forward to what is to come. Finally, I think it's important for us as we come to an end, as we soon partake of the cup ourselves, we must think very clearly about the cup that we do not drink. As we drink the cup that commemorates the blood of Christ, we must think long and hard about the cup that we have been spared from. Every time we drink the cup of Christ, we must think long and hard about the cup that we deserve to drink, the cup of the righteous indignation of God. If we do not grasp the horrid hell that we have been saved from, we cannot fathom the depths of mercy that we have been covered with. If we avoid thinking of the flames and the fires of hell, we will only dilute the sweet mercy of God. We must take time to think much about the horrors of hell. We must take time to think about the miseries and agonies and burnings and unquenchable fires and pains that awaited us if we were to experience the sweet comforts, if we do not experience the sweet comforts of the cross. The very last verse of Isaiah declares, Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all of mankind. And that last verse is incredibly scary. It's incredibly vivid. They will go forth, and they will look at the damned. Why would God allow such horrors to be seen in eternity? Why would God allow the redeemed to see these things. 
I think it's because it reminds us of his awesome righteousness and it will forever prove to us the great damnation which he has mercifully spared us from. So let me ask you finally this morning, do you shun away from thinking of hell? Do you shun away from the truths of God's righteous indignation against sinners? Have you conveniently forgotten this doctrine? If so, you are in danger of deluding the greatness of the gospel. The cross was the damnation of Christ. The cross was hell on earth. To the extent that you have grasped the depths of God's judgment upon Christ is the extent you have grasped his mercy upon you. There are many who want to bask in their salvation, who extol God for his kindness to them, but they stay away from the thoughts of divine judgment. Too much gloom and doom, too much harshness and horror, too depressing to think about. But the ensuing result is a weak understanding of the cross. Communion is to be not simply a radically Christ-centered time, but is to be reflected of what God has redeemed us from. Finally, I want to add this just final Final word. Communion is for believers. Communion, I think as Dan shared this morning, we ask if you're not a believer this morning that you would quietly, you know, after after this service we'll have snacks and we'll have time to fellowship. But the communion time, the communion luncheon is only for believers. And we... We do that not simply, you know, to harshly exclude you because we don't want you here. On the contrary, we do want you here. But we're mindful that for you to drink of the cup, in particular bread, it would be unsuitable. It would be unfitting for you who do not trust you, who do not believe, and who do not profess Christ. And what we would have you this morning then recognize is that if you cannot... If you cannot drink the cup this morning, if you cannot eat the bread, if you cannot fellowship and commune with us around the Lord's table this morning, if you cannot drink the cup of grace, you will therefore drink the cup of God's wrath. If you are therefore unable to partake in the fellowship around the cross, you must be mindful that you are memorializing and commemorating to yourself that you will soon drink the dregs of the cup of God's righteous indignation upon yourself. So though we cannot invite you first to the table, we invite you to the cross. We invite you to come and to see that your sins can be nailed to the cross there. If you would put your faith, if you would confess that you, like us, are a wretched sinner. If you, like us, are dead in your sins. If you, like us, can do no righteousness of your own. But if you, like us, would confess that to God, if you would cry out to God, if you would put your hope and your faith in Christ, then you can come and partake of the bread and the cup. Then you confess with us that your sins are forgiven. Because there are only two cups in life, the cup of grace and the cup of God's wrath. As you know, Tuesday was Veterans Day. And on Tuesday, I read a particular story of an 84-year-old retired World War II veteran, a medic named Anthony Acevedo. This man currently resides in Loma Linda. He, along with some 350 other U.S. troops, were captured by the Nazis at the infamous Battle of the Bulge, one of the fiercest battles on the European front. The Nazis had surrounded these men, our troops, on the front lines, and they cut them off, leaving them stranded behind. They were then captured by the Nazis. 
And these men, 350 of our soldiers, were sent to Germany, where they themselves were placed in concentration camps. They were particularly placed in one camp just outside the main camp of the horrid camp of Buchenwald. There they were forced to work 12 hours a day, digging tunnels and ditches to hide German artillery. At night, they were forced to sleep on their bunks, completely naked, with no blankets. Acevedo says he watched many of his friends and fellow soldiers die from murder and starvation. They were given 100 grams of bread per week made of sawdust, ground glass, and barley. The soup that they were given was made from cats and rats. You can understand now why 12 hours a day of hard labor is difficult. At the end of the article, a fellow soldier remarks that such American war heroes are an endangered species and must be honored now. For once they're gone, they're gone. It is appropriate to honor these American soldiers who ate wood and ate glass for our liberty. But how much more shall we honor and praise the king who drank the cup of God's wrath? Many have experienced the horrors of war for us, but only one has experienced the full fury of God's wrath for us. The heroes of America will soon be gone, but the hero will live forever. This morning we drink the cup of grace not only to remember the sober past of the cross, but to be filled with the joy of the prospect of the soon coming king. May we humble ourselves this morning before our Lord. May we allow our hearts to be filled with joy at the reality of a cross-centered church, which points to the grace that has been given and the joy that is to come. Father, we bow before you this morning, full of gratitude, full of gladness, full of awe, that you drank the cup of wrath, that we might drink the cup of grace. We pray, God, that again these truths would stir us. That as we come, we are merely partakers. We are merely recipients. That it was Christ who extended the bread, His body. And it was Christ who extended the blood, the cup, to us. And this morning again, communion is, is a reminder of Your extended hand to us. Not of our extension to You. Communion is a reminder of Your grace to us, not of our works towards You. Communion reminds us that we are again are still desperate and needy for Your grace. And it reminds us of our joy and gladness that awaits for us in heaven. So, Lord, use this time, use this memorial to stir our hearts and our affections and our gratitude again, all through what you have accomplished for your glory and for our good at the cross. Thank you again. Pray these things in your name.